when I'm walking, not only is my grandfather walking with me, not only are my parents and their sacrifices, but also the communities that I'm connecting with. And so me sitting at the table or bringing that damn seat at the table <laughs> has more of a purpose beyond myself. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Michelle Angela Ortiz, who's been pursuing public art for decades around Philly and around the world. I tell people I have like a Napoleon complex and a small woman likes to do big things. For one thing, Michelle makes murals, big, vibrant, sweeping murals that stretch hundreds of feet wide in Caracas, Venezuela, Havana, Cuba, Brooklyn, New York. She designs them, executes them, and collaborates with residents to create something beautiful for the community. But she doesn't stop there. Michelle has spent years working to humanize and highlight an issue that has shaped her own life, immigration. Stay tuned to hear Michelle's story and how her art has stretched far beyond the walls. Now on Philly Who. When you talk to Michelle, it very quickly becomes apparent that she is an artist. She likes to describe the details, like white flowers on her grandmother's lavender dress, and the market. She loves describing the market she rode her bike through when she was 13. Maybe she didn't realize it as a kid, but the 9th Street Market in South Philly, which is Michelle's home, would shape her perspective as an artist for years to come. I was born and raised in South Philadelphia, right by the 9th Street Market, or what people usually refer to as the Italian market. I still live on the same block that I was born and raised and actually own the home across the street from the house that I grew up on. I now have a five-year-old who plays on the very same street that I played in as a child just visually seeing every morning going to school and now taking my son to school. I see the vendors setting up their stands. I see families walking also as frantically as I am to try to get to school on time. My mother is originally from Mompos, which is a small town in the state of Cartagena or Departamento de Bolivar is how I refer to it. And her small town is actually a UNESCO heritage site one of the many towns where the Magdalena River, which is the main, I would say, living, breathing artery of Colombia, runs through. And it also has a market. My mother as a child with my grandmother, they didn't have a stand, so they would have a table, flip it upside down, tie a rope to the edge, load all up all the food, and carry it to uh, wow. the river <laughs> and the market. And uh, my grandmother, she... Uh, Maria Dionisia Navarro, we called her Mama Icha. She has passed away now, but lived in Colombia for 60 years of her life in Mompos. And then at age 60, she decided to come to be with us in Philadelphia. Wow. So I remember being three years old and looking up at this beautiful, large, brown woman and <laughs> just being in awe uh, of her presence. I still remember vividly the white flowers on her lavender dress. My father is from uh, Puerto Rico. 
in both my parents, you know, when they were young teenagers, they didn't have a lot of resources. They were dealing with poverty. They were dealing with lack of educational and job opportunities. And so that led them to immigrate. So my grandfather eventually did come to live with us. And also, so my father's father and my mother's mother. So seven people in a small South Philly row home. (laughs) Plus we had a dog named Beya who was half Chow Chow, half German Shepherd with a half pink and purple tongue um, (laughs) who who was totally bilingual from our, from our um, perspective. When my parents arrived on that block, it was in 1973, 74. My mother actually worked for the Giordano's family, Paul and Francis Giordano. My mother was able to meet Francis, who was the grandmom, and she was tough. You know, she had 13 kids, according to what her grandchildren tell me and, and what my mother tells me. My mother said that she was lucky that the grandmother actually liked her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, my mom, as someone who went from one market in Mompos to find in another city, in another country, to find a home near a place that was familiar to her. So what I find in the market is this kind of really common story of just immigrant families trying to find a place and a better life for their children. And I think that the market has remained, but it's taken a huge toll. I say also that for the Italian vendor that had a produce, their dream for their child, for some of them, was not for them to do the same work, right? So it's this this connection to the American dream, quotations, right, that you become a professional, you become a lawyer, you become an accountant. You So there are very few, uh, there are a handful of families like the De Brunos, the Anastasios, the Giordanos are still there. And not to make anyone feel bad for leaving, because, again, those are the choices that they're making and what the families are able to do. But by not having another generation present, there are some empty spaces, right? I think it's challenging for that development of the community. So I feel that the arrival of the specifically Southeast Asian Vietnamese community and then the arrival of Mexican-American and Central American immigrants have revived some of these storefronts that were empty. Wow. So I think for me in the market, I see things so much beyond than just Italian, Mexico, El Salvador, Vietnamese. Like I see more of that common thread of just the immigrant experience and what the market uh, and that space, including my neighborhood, uh, including my own personal story, has provided for me. So you mentioned sort of the dream that your children would go into like accounting or, or something like that, right? So did you feel any pressure like that from your parents growing up? I was always a straight A student, National Honor Society. I was really interested in being a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But I think it was more around my interest around social rights and fighting for what's fair. Age seven, my teachers began to mention to my mother that I had this knack for drawing and painting. And they encouraged her to put me in drawing classes. And at that time, it was really hard for her and expensive. And in terms of my parents, they really encouraged me to pursue my interest in art. Yeah. Actually say, okay, I'm 
going to study this. And I was supported, which is very rare because I have friends who are children of immigrants right. and they were forced to kind of be like, no, you need to choose yeah. this degree or we're not going to support you. So is there a particular moment in time or a particular piece where you started to feel that your art and your expression was more than just yourself? Kind of like you said, it's, it's more than just me, right? Like it, this is something that can impact entire communities. The very first meal that I actually created was in my high school. I don't know if it's still there, but it was in response to an incident that was very, in my mind, very racist. <laughs> and, um, and so it was me responding to a nun and her comment. And then I had created my very first mural with images celebrating diversity. So I felt that we had our very first multicultural event celebration that as a teenager, I, I helped build with a number of other students of color in Goretti. I believe it was the first of its kind within the 50 year or 40 years of the high school existing. And I remember at the end of the presentation, I dedicated my mural to the student body, right, to my class that was graduating. And I'm on stage and, and I said this and everyone just like just like jumped up and was just like screaming and yelling, but just like the sense of like pride and connection and representation. Now it's 20 years that I've been doing this work. I think earlier on, I really didn't see just what the impact was of just me being a woman, scaffolding on a lift, uh, leading a team, being Latina and speaking the same language as some of the communities I've connected with. What are some of your earliest memories of feeling that artistic support from your family? My art supplies were the papers that my mother and my father collected from the offices that they would clean in the evenings. Because my father worked for, I believe, almost 30 plus years at the 1601 Market Building. He cleaned. Every night he cleaned about 10 to 12 floors. And so what he would do when he would see like scrap paper or pens or pencils, or he would collect that. And those scrap pieces of paper became my first sketchbooks. I love X-Men, my favorite character is Storm. So as a child, I would say that's really how I learned about proportion and anatomy by just looking and copying and um, observing. So my very first class at the Young Artist Program at Moore College of Art and Design, which is where I eventually went to and attended for my undergrad and graduated, I walked in with loose leaf and these sheets of paper and a sharpie marker and a number two pencil and these kids have like strathmore 18 by 24 paper and charcoal and kneaded erasers and their art bins and i felt so disconnected right and not prepared and like just really i felt really small right and I, so i go back and i tell my mom and i was, I was like you know she's like how did it go and i was like it was good but all these kids had this and this and this and this and my mom was just so amazing. She went to what used to be the art store on Pearl on South Street. And she spoke with one of the managers. And she said to him, my daughter's taking a drawing class. What materials would she need? And she had bought me my very first art bin, my charcoal, my paper. She was never in an art store before. <laughs> and so for her to take that leap to see what my necessity is, and I still have that art bin with me. Soon, X-Men turned into high school art programs, which eventually turned into art school. Michelle was accepted to the Moore College of Art and Design. She was the first in her family to attend college. I met Moore. I'm a freshman. 
and I now have to choose my major. So all this time I'm thinking I'm going to be a graphic designer. So thinking about like just, okay, what would be within the art world the most financially secure direction I can go to? And I just remember sitting in the design class, like figuring out, okay, how do we move this font and letter around? I was like, I cannot do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I needed something, obviously, that was more challenging, but I felt that this is not, you know, I, I was taking already painting classes and sculpture classes. And I felt like, okay, I can totally, this is definitely a lot more challenging. So it wasn't so much of what my mother's reaction was. It was me fearing that I would have my parents feel that all their sacrifices were in vain if I were to say, I'm going to go into 2D and painting, right? I'm going to be a painter. And then there's all these stereotypes, especially if you're coming from a Latino family where they're like, oh, you know, the artists, they have tattoos everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And so they just thought like, you know, they have green hair and they just are crazy. And so I was also battling some of those stereotypes within my extended family. And my mom, and I remember this in her burgundy minivan sitting in front of, I just got out of Moore. She was picking me up. I'm sitting in the car with her and she's like, so what did you decide? And I told her, I said, I think I'm going to be a 2D arts major. And I was like, but I don't know because then I started just start crying. And then my mom was like, it doesn't matter. It's okay. You know, whatever you decide to do, you're going, I know that you're going to do the best in, in whatever you decide to do. So and how did you feel when she said I that? I know I was just like, just a sigh of relief, you know, and just okay, I have the support that I need. And when I mean support, like early on during that time frame, my, you know, I told you there's seven people living in our house, and so I remember doing. We would have six-hour studio classes. We had to execute these huge drawings. I tell people I have like a Napoleon complex and a small woman <laughs> likes to do big things. The biggest painting. Yes. <laughs> so there were really beautiful moments where besides my dog walking over my drawings, you know, I was doing a self-portrait and I mentioned my grandfather, my abuelo Gaspar. Uh, so my grandfather worked in uh, Puerto Rico, as I mentioned, and then came to live with us when I was about 11 years old. So fast forward you know, eight years, seven years later, I'm in school and I'm doing these huge portraits. My grandfather was deaf and he did not know how to read or write. So being an artist came really in handy because I could communicate with him through drawings or both my mother and I communicated with him better than the rest of the other family members through signs that we would invent. It wouldn't be like the American sign language, but it would be something that we could understand each other. And so I remember moments of working really late, trying to finish like one of my huge portraits. And my grandfather would just be standing or sitting behind me watching me, right? And it was just such, you know, like I I get really emotional because I feel like he's still like one of my guardian angels. It's just so such like precious moments, right? Because throughout my practice, when I talk about the presence and the support of my family, but also understanding the sacrifices that they've gone through. And my grandfather had experienced a lot of discrimination for not just being being a worker, but also just because of his not being able to hear, being being deaf. And so there are those moments that are really hold really dear that I feel like my gift and skill as an artist beyond the work that I've done in communities just 
what a beautiful gift and connection, you know, those special moments have been with my grandfather. But also, I think with my family, you know, I started out doing portraits and drawings of my family as a way to honor our stories, as a way to really mark us as part of this world that we exist in, right? What I think that most people don't know that I struggle with is that, you know, as I enter into spaces like the Kennedy Center or, you know, I'm finding myself beginning to connect with spaces that not that they weren't accessible, but that it wasn't something, you know, that the doors are opening for me. And so I struggle with coming from a place, understanding my grandfather's story, for example, and my parents' story around poverty and lack of resources. And where do I fit in a space that is exuding privilege and wealth and in a way that I could tap into those resources to help the communities that I'm connecting with or to bring awareness around the issues and to help the people who are on the line, like the activists and organizers that are doing this work. And that's how I try to see it. So it's kind of me, Michelle, being that same 16, 17 year old in that youth program where like I felt small. Sometimes I find myself feeling small. And how I get over that is by thinking, okay, when I'm walking, not only is my grandfather walking with me, not only are my parents and their sacrifices and their struggle, they're walking with me, but also the communities that I'm connecting with. And so me sitting at the table or bringing that damn seat at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drag it up. (laughs) Right? Or busting open those doors has more of a purpose beyond myself, beyond than just me there. Eventually, Michelle started creating murals everywhere. In Fiji, Mexico, Venezuela, Honduras. She worked with hundreds of community members to design and craft images of hope, inspiration, and empowerment. And before long, she was using art not only to empower and encourage, but to fight. We'll travel with Michelle around the world right after this. Welcome back to Philly Who with Michelle Angela Ortiz. Now, at one point, Michelle was painting murals in her South Philly high school. Years later, she was doing the same thing, but a lot farther from home. In Argentina, I worked with a group of folks from Talleres Protegidos, which is a mental health facility that actually offers therapy for folks who are dealing with mental health issues through actually making things. So this beautiful facility has patients that come and and still live in their communities. They're not interned in a mental health facility, but they come and it is by the act of doing plus therapy that helps the neurons in connecting and helping them through that process. They make, I believe, 90% of the furniture and beds for all of the hospitals in Buenos Aires. Wow. So I had about a group of 40 people, and then we created in less than two weeks a over 200-foot-long mural. So we went from like walls and walls and walls of gray to then colorful images that are representing not just the spirit of the place, but the actual words and participation of the patients and their therapists and even the director onto those walls. So the U.S. government heads an initiative known as the Arts Envoy Program. It sends writers, painters, and artists to different corners of the world. 
Michelle has served as an arts envoy multiple times, and that's how she ended up in Juarez, just south of the U.S.-Mexico border. About a decade ago, when Michelle landed in Juarez to paint a mural, it was not a tourist destination. The city's drug-fueled violence had reached an all-time high. That year, news outlets everywhere had dubbed Juarez the murder capital of the world. But amid all the debilitating violence, people wanted to paint. It was during a time where a lot of the artists that are just in El Paso wouldn't go into Juarez and do work. And so I said yes to go and do this residency. And in short, we were, I was working with about 80 volunteers the day before the dedication. So we were working there late at 10 p.m. And during this whole time, I felt completely safe with the community. There was music playing. The grandmothers were out. Everything just felt like just calm. And then in a split second, one of my artists within my team was attacked. Then that person ran off. And then that person then came back with like some seven more people and started throwing stones at our team. So everyone's running off. And because I was part of the cultural envoy program, the person that was there with me just basically grabbed me and shoved me in the car in a bulletproof vehicle. What I was experiencing was what most families in Juarez are experiencing on a daily basis, right? And they don't have the protection of someone grabbing them and putting them in a bulletproof vehicle. So because of the protocol for the embassy, they basically were like, you're not going back to that site. And I said, no, we have to go back because tomorrow's a dedication and we need to figure something out because we've just went through a full week of talking about military presence, the abuse of power, and the violence. And our mural is really a journey of flooding and death and, and all of this destruction to a place of light and recovery and the change that we want to see. We just went through all this process and it, it is hypocritical of me of not showing up. So we need to do something so I can be there the next day. This is not knowing if my mural was defaced. This was not knowing if the mural had been finished, right? And so I show up the next day at 11 a.m. on Sunday. All 80 participants are there and they're dressed in their Sunday best. And the artists who are part of my team, plus the volunteers, went back at three o'clock in the morning the night before when all of this had happened and finished the very last bit of the mural. To witness the community stand there, their solidarity, their ownership of the artwork, the celebrating the work that we were doing together was so much greater than what we had experienced in terms of that violent act. Our mural is about 120 feet long. It hasn't been defaced, not once. But in all of my travels and in the communities I worked with, you know, there are these assumptions of what the expectations of the community members are. The neighbors, the volunteers, the artists surpassed the expectations of not just the embassy, but the in-country partner organizations that they were just blown away. Fast forward to 2019. Michelle Angela Ortiz is continuing to gather people and paint. And over the past decade, the conversation about immigration has grown much louder. Deportations, detention centers, family separations. I feel connected to that as a child of immigrants and also understand that the very same conditions in which 
people are deciding to cross a border, to cross a river, to risk their lives, is also based on the same premise of some of the conditions that my parents had dealt with extreme poverty situations and trying to build a new life at that time just for themselves and then eventually for their families. We are human beings risking our lives for our families and our future. Those are the words Michelle installed on the Philadelphia streets. The phrase stretched 90 feet wide and anybody could see it, including the officers who worked Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Michelle installed the words right below the ICE headquarters. It's the first point of detention for undocumented loved ones, uh, family members. And so it also has jurisdiction in Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey. It also has the highest number of non-criminal arrests, which makes it one of the most aggressive ICE facilities within the United States. So when we think about our city of Philadelphia, and we have images of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. We have our Liberty Bell, the Declaration of Independence. But we also are home to the ICE building that continues to detain and have people fall within the system of deportation that falls into the larger system of mass incarceration and the really the targeting of black and brown communities falling into that system and profiting off of them. And so... We created the piece in front of the 16th and Cal Hill building and specifically at the exit point where loved ones who are detained are then moved and transported to prisons or jails to continue their deportation proceedings or fighting against their deportation. In this phase one, I decided to focus on Philadelphia as I mentioned, I worked directly with Juntos in identifying some family members and then other family members referred me to others that were highlighted in the project. According to Philadelphia, if you're doing a work of art on the sidewalk, you would need the permission of the wall owner or the property owner. That would have been ICE. So in our case, I looked to the street. And so it was very important to have the, and I talk about this in terms of artist responsibility, because me and as an individual artist and as a U.S. citizen can take risk that families that are undocumented cannot, right? right? The risks are greater for them. To be able to have a space where the community could work with me in front of this building that represents fear to them, right? It was necessary that I would have the permissions from the city, the support from the mayor, support from the commissioner to be able to do this safely without any of the participants being impacted. This is where the determination part comes around. I was not going to take no for an answer. So the stencils were made with the community, with different workshops that I had led at the Juntos space, that they open up their doors so that I can do that. And then I had bought all the supplies I had a plan of action for everything to happen on Monday and we still didn't have approval. So it wasn't until Friday before that Monday that we got the final yes from the streets commissioner that we can make this happen. I wanted these messages to be in very public, prominent spaces, right? Because I, not that I hadn't done that before, but most of my work are in neighborhoods. It's about uplifting the neighborhoods. It's about bringing honor. And in this case, for these installations, very public spaces and engaging people that 
don't usually come in contact with these stories. And so ICE, you know, and, and I for months, I would just walk through all these spaces. And so I knew for sure that the courtyard in Philadelphia, which marks the center of our city, you know, with William Penn looming over, right? But it marks the center of our city and centering the story of Maria, representing, you know, one of 50,000 undocumented people that we have in our city contributing to the livelihood of our city at the center of our city, at the center of the conversation. People could see it as an act of defiance, but I feel that it was for me as the ICE agents were looking down at us from the time of installation, which was around seven o'clock that evening to about 11. It was just such a powerful moment. And one of those moments that I also hold close in terms of my memories, in terms of my artistic practice. What was powerful about it? It was powerful because, as I had mentioned, the families see that space as a place of fear, a place of the risk of being separated from their families or a memory of being detained there and being out and now still fighting. So I think that even the mere presence of the families and seeing children run and play around us as we were trying to figure out the placement of the pieces, I wouldn't have been able to lay down those words because of the scale. It was a 90 foot long stencil without all of the hands that were placed on that stencil. So I was uh, not just managing below, but I also was uh, running up to the garage that's across the street and looking from above and managing the groups. And so it was definitely a collective effort to bring forward not just my artwork and the concept of how I wanted to bring it forward. Michelle didn't need to cross a border or take a flight to get her message across. The thing she really wanted to fight was just a couple hours away in Leesport, Pennsylvania, Berks County. Michelle refocused her artwork on the Berks County Residential Center, more commonly known as the Berks County Detention Center. This detention center, which is about an hour and 45 minutes, is in Berks County. It's a county-run family prison that has detained children as young as two weeks old and continues to detain children and their parents to this day. Also, a laundry list of human rights abuses that include medical neglect and institutional rape, labor rights abuses. So one of your more recent projects is a documentary about many of the mothers and children that have been held at the Burke's Family Detention Center for some close to two years. Exactly. Yeah. How was expressing this through the art form of film different than your previous works? So this documentary, Las Madres de Berks, is actually my third short doc. Okay. So I think of myself as an artist that uses my skill sets as a way to advocate for the people who are on the ground and doing this work. So the mothers, as they ha were there for those two years, they had organized hunger and labor strikes, and they had been fighting every step of the way for their freedom. And the women that are featured in the film, three of them were released from the center, and then they were able to be reunited with their families. And uh, one of the mothers uh, featured in the film uh, was deported back to El Salvador. Karen story, and her son, Stephen, who are now living in El Salvador. 
her son had two suicide attempts at the age of six while he was at Burke's. So when we think about detention and deportation, when we think about what people are like, well, now they're out. But even though that they're out in their respective cities or country, home country, they're still dealing with the trauma of being detained. Karen, she's returning back to the same conditions that she was fleeing from. And then the mothers, the mothers that still remain in the United States, are still navigating through the system. They still have to report to ICE every month. ICE comes to their home once a week, right? Michelle knows these stories so well because she spent almost two years interviewing a group of mothers detained at the Berks County Residential Center. She took those conversations about what detention is really like, and she created a documentary called Las Madres de Berks, The Mothers of Berks. So when we think about, well, now they're released, they're better, but they're still dealing with that pending fear of being separated from their child. So I would do the interviews with the mothers and then leave with something that was, because I felt, I feel that as an artist, I need to provide moments of healing So leave with the mothers in having them actually create illustrations and writings, echoing and presenting their wishes for themselves and for their children, right? What is their future? How you're envisioning your future? When you see the film, you are able not to just hear what the mothers have experienced before, during, and after detention and get some information around Burks, but you are also able to see that mother be with her child, play with her child, sing to her child. And at times where they felt completely hopeless, they would always show love to their child, you know, a smile, a hug. That that child felt at least had moments where they felt secure and loved with their parent, right? And then, you know, we're talking specifically about Burks, but there's a number of children that are in detention that don't even have their parents around them. And that's why I feel it's so urgent for us to continue to share these stories. But with the Las Madres de Burks, it's also about showcasing their power and their resilience. They're victims of the system. But it is incredibly important that through the film, we get to hear them. We get to see them. We get to hear their side of the story, which is not often, again, presented. And then we are able to feel these emotions that go beyond what I tell people is that, you know, I hope that all of us as as children have a sense and a memory of what it means to feel loved and, and feel safe. We will do anything for our children. And so being able to make those emotional connections through the film that can only be accomplished through the mothers telling their story is helping people, you know, we know what the facts are. Yeah. So I want people to feel and feel that emotion and have that be combined with the facts. As Michelle mentioned, Berks County Residential Center remains open. Karen was deported back to El Salvador. In the fall of 2018, Governor Tom Wolf walked to work each morning and was greeted by one of Michelle's installations blanketing the Capitol steps. Michelle created it as a reminder that Pennsylvania is home to one of the country's most controversial detention centers. It was a portrait of Karen and her son. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. 
Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons. Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was produced by me and Angela Gervasi, with associate production by Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time. <laughs>